I'll invite you to turn with me to Psalm 90, uh, book of Psalms in chapter 90. So we're going to be doing again just uh, over the next couple of weeks, uh, just looking at a few different Psalms. And then uh, eventually, uh, towards the end of the month, we'll begin uh, our new series in the book of Galatians, and we'll just work through the, the book of Galatians um, but we'll do for sure two, probably three psalms, just uh, so you are aware of what's going on. But, um, but today we're in Psalm 90, and this is a psalm that was written by Moses. And, and many think because of its contents, and if you just think about the life of Moses, that the historical event that is in view here is when Israel had received the disastrous word from God that they would not be allowed into Canaan, but rather they would be doomed to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, and that that adult generation would perish in the wilderness, and it would be their children whom they feared would be slaughtered if they went into Canaan. It would be those children that God would actually take into the land of Canaan 40 years later. It's difficult to know and to say for certain that that's the the context of this psalm, that that's what's in view, but certainly it does fit uh, with what we read here. And so I want to just, we'll, we'll go ahead and just read through this together, and then we will work our way through it more slowly. So Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. As I said, this might have been written in reflection upon Israel being barred from entrance into the land of Canaan. Regardless of the historic setting of it, it reveals a needy people facing the brevity of life and the reality of death. The occasion is not, then of this psalm is not a particularly happy one. And the psalm does consider some heavy matters. And then as it does this, it then goes on to make a number of uh, prayers and petitions in light of all the things that, that uh, are considered in this psalm. So it does consider God's character at the outset. It does look at God's goodness and his justice but then also the sinfulness and of man and the brevity of life. And then it goes on to make a number of these petitions in light of all that is considered. And of course, beyond Moses and beyond those of Moses' day, these words carry instruction for us now. These carry instruction for us as sojourners. And every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a sojourner in this world. We are those who have not yet reached our ultimate destination, the greater Canaan, the new heavens and new earth. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.20 tells us there that our citizenship is in heaven. Ultimately, we are citizens of heaven, and this place is not our final destination. 
as we now see it. We are currently strangers and exiles on this earth as we await our Savior's return to make all things new. And as we go about these days, as we live our lives on this earth, we are just a reality. We are uncertain of what lies ahead. We just don't know. We don't know if what lies in store for us are continued or, or greater temporal blessings toward us, or if we can expect just harder and harder days. We don't know what is going to happen in society around us, whether things will continue to speed off the cliff or whether the Lord in his mercy will see fit that there will be a turnaround and there might even be great revival. We really don't know. Even if things did turn around and sanity seemed to kind of return and and many more came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which would be wonderful and we would celebrate, we hope for, pray for, work towards that end. But even if that happens, we still wouldn't be certain of what the future holds. Any one of us at any time could be struck with illness, could be delivered horrible news, could face tragedy, and of course, even death. This is the reality of living in a sin-cursed world. We know that God has told us, he has revealed to us in his word that we can expect trials, we can expect a measure of suffering, we can expect a measure of persecution even. Paul told Timothy that, that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We remember from the Sermon on the Mount in our time there um, that Christ's people are those who are persecuted and who are slandered uh, on account of Christ, on account of believing in Christ. We also know as Uh, Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves and that at the time it seems painful. It's not a pleasant experience to undergo God's discipline. And yet the promises are there as well, that God disciplines with a faithful hand uh, in order to sanctify his people. And so we are not those who are facing 40 years in the wilderness, waiting entrance into the physical land of Canaan. But there is yet much from this psalm to instruct us, much wisdom to be found here as those who are on our own sojourn, if you will, and not in our ultimate home and destination. And so this psalm begins, interestingly, not with a cry for help, but rather it begins with this remembrance and recitation about the grace and the eternity of God, about the grace of God and about something about who this God is. So it begins in verse one saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses begins with this recollection of God's presence with them through the generations. Now this would be Moses looking backwards at, I would say at least to Abraham. And he's doing this, as John Calvin said, in order to magnify the grace of adoption. He's recalling that the Lord called Abraham and then Abraham's children, Abraham's offspring after him, out of all the peoples on the earth, out of all the peoples that God could have revealed himself to. He he chose Abraham, he revealed himself to Abraham, and then said he would make a nation out of Abraham's descendants from which a blessing would come to all the nations of the earth. And while Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and then the descendants after Jacob, while they had all wandered, they had all lived as exiles, uh, again, Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13, um, though they had not any of them received the land of Canaan, it had been promised to them, they sojourned through it. While that is true, God nevertheless had been their dwelling place. They may not have had a physical land that they could call their own, And they may have even for a time been slaves in Egypt. But nevertheless, the Lord was their dwelling place. God was theirs. They were God's people. He was their stability. He was their refuge. He was their hope. And if you think about even their time in Egypt, when they were oppressed and treated very poorly, we read, nevertheless, that God blessed them and prospered them and they continued to grow. Uh, which, which is unheard of uh, given the amount of oppression that they, would, they had experienced under the hand of the Egyptians. 
And so if Moses is considering this and, and writing this during these wandering years in the wilderness at some point, whether it's early on or maybe towards the end of the wandering years, there's an understanding here that in many ways this isn't new. That God's people before them had always been those who were sojourning and wandering, and yet it is true that God had been ultimately their dwelling place. That the greatest blessing of all was that they belong to God and God to them. God had been gracious to them in calling them to be his own people. And so those like Moses, who nevertheless had to wander through the wilderness for those 40 years, but who had yet were believing God and trusting in God, the faithful among the nation of Israel, they would cling to this reality that nevertheless God has been kind to them. And that even as they wandered, they had his tabernacle. They had his law given to them. Uh, they, they, they could worship God rightly according to his word. So again, the faithful among the people of Israel would understand that their true inheritance was even beyond the earthly Canaan. And rather, their, their, their ultimate inheritance was God himself. And I think this is uh, supported, this interpretation, by the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, we read of the, the faithful, uh, those who, had, um, who did, all the, did all these wonderful things by faith, we're told, in the book of, uh, of Hebrews in, in chapter 11. And yet we are told that even those Old Testament saints, even those who possessed the land of Canaan, who lived in the land of Canaan, they were still looking to a greater reality. They were still looking to a city who had its, whose foundations and whose builder was God, this heavenly Jerusalem. They're looking even beyond that land of Canaan to something even much greater. When we think about the Old Testament and the Old Testament believers, I think oftentimes we look at it and we think, we see very plainly as we read just how dull they could be at times and how slow they were to believe God and to trust God. And we can read that and we can kind of shake our head and roll our eyes and think, I don't, you know, how could you possibly grumble and doubt God after he just parted a sea for you to walk through? That just seems like it couldn't possibly be. And yet if we don't in some way identify with the people of Israel and their slowness to believe and to trust God and their tendency to grumble, I think we're misreading the situation. When we read the scriptures, we can zoom out and see the big picture. We know how it goes for Israel. We know they're, they're standing. We would like to think that if we were standing before this body of water and there was an army bearing down intent on completely wiping us out and destroying us, of course we would believe that God is going to do something uh, great here and deliver us. Um, and and maybe, maybe you would have, by God's grace, had that hope. Um, but I think their doubt and their fear and their concern is at least, the very least, understandable. I mean, but, but we have the, the benefit of hindsight. We know how this played out for them. And yet, when we're in the midst of our own trial, when we're in the midst of our own hardships, we likewise can struggle to get context we can struggle to respond in faith, in trust of the Lord. Struggle to believe that God yet remains true, that the same God who has proved himself faithful throughout those pages of the Old Testament that we read has also pledged himself to remain faithful to his people today. And he will remain faithful. <clears throat> Let's continue into verse 2. Moses proceeds by considering God's eternality. So verse 2 says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This verse is loaded. Essentially, what this is getting at is that God is eternal and God is unchanging. He stands apart 
from his creation. He is the one who existed before creation was formed, which means he existed before time was a thing, before time was created. He exists outside of time. He is not a time-bound being. There is creation, and then there is God. He is other. And this is Moses' way of, of trying to express this. Words fall short of trying to uh, grasp that fully. Our, our minds can't fully grasp God, who would exist outside of time, who would not experience time as you and I do. And Moses is saying that this is who God is, and this is who he always is. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God, and he is the same God. And this certainly speaks to God's essence, to who God is in his nature, but it is more than just a, a, a theological formulation that's there, you know, that's, that we ought to believe. Certainly, it is something we ought to believe, but it is there for much more than that. It is there for a few reasons. One is to help us to find comfort in this. Again, the, the same God who has faithfully given himself to his people and proven himself to his people in ages past is the same God now and forevermore. It is the same God that we are here to worship together today. His promises are true and his promises are always true. They might not arrive on our time schedule, but his promises are true. We don't always see and understand the way he works and how he's going to work good in a difficult circumstance, but, we, but it's true that he will and that he is good. Again, in uh, Peter, Peter talks about those who mocked, uh, where is the promise of his coming? Right? They're already in the first century, people who are like, look, he's not coming. Right? You've been duped, you've been misled, Jesus is not returning. That's, that's within 100, under 100 years from when Jesus had ascended to the Father's right hand. And here we are in 2022, and still he hasn't come. It would be nice if he would come. It would be very good. In fact, in that very section, Peter quotes from, this, from these verses to remind us that God's from, from Psalm 90, to remind us that God's timeline is different than our own, but God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. This is who he is. And so he's worthy to be trusted. He's worthy to be believed. It is good and right to make our appeals to him for his ongoing help and mercy, which we'll see later in this psalm, because he is everlastingly God, everlastingly the same. It is here for our comfort, these words. Also, it sets up the contrast that's going to be really evident in verses 3 to 11 between us and our finiteness and sinfulness and the everlasting, eternal creator God. If we do not affirm the greatness and awesomeness of the Almighty, we'll miss the important lessons of Psalm 90. And the contrast of this psalm. And so Moses begins here in verses 1 and 2 with a humble recognition of God's greatness and of his graciousness to his people. And then this leads right into the next section. The next section of the psalm is verses 3 down to verse 11. In which Moses considers the eternal God and sinful finite man and God's dealings with sinful man. He reflects in these verses upon the brevity of human life and the justice of God in it. And one of the interesting things about this section is that this is not presented to us here, or it's not presented to... It, Moses has not come to God in a spirit of complaint about the brevity of life. There are places in Scripture where we, we find an agonizing over the... the the, just this, the, the, um, the vanity of life, the book of Ecclesiastes, you recall, when we went through that. But here, it is not brought to us in that way. It is presented to us as a very logical thing. 
given the sinfulness of man, given the holiness of God, it is presented, in fact, as, as, as God's justice. So verse 3 says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Now, the word man in Hebrew is the word Adam, which is also the proper name of the first man, Adam. So Adam, we just say Adam. And so there's some debate and question here of whether this should be understood as return, O children of man, or return, O children of Adam. And I think the latter is, is possibly, probably a better rendering because it very clearly evokes Genesis 3.19, which we read earlier, when Adam is cursed. I mean, either way, it still reminds us of, of Genesis 3.19. But I want to read that again for you. So when, when Adam and Eve had sinned and God is pronouncing the curse and he addresses Adam and says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And Moses is bringing that up again. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of Adam. God has declared that the punishment for sin is death. And all of Adam's children are subject to it. We have fallen in Adam and we have committed innumerable sins of our own in our thinking, in our attitudes, in our actions, in our doing, in our words, every which way. And interestingly also here, death is declared to be God's activity. Notice it says, you return man. To dust. In verse 5, he says, You sweep them away as with a flood. Verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger. I recall a recent funeral in which the person who was speaking said, God wouldn't do this. Speaking of this tragic death, God wouldn't do this. And I think this was an attempt to vindicate God for what was undeniably a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching tragedy. But the fact is, that's just not what the Bible says. It's not what the scriptures teach. It says here, you return man to dust. This is God's judgment upon sinners. And what is stated here is much more uncomfortable in some ways than saying God wouldn't do this. But there's something crucial in grasping this, that death is a judgment from God. It is a reminder of sin. It is a reminder of the sin-cursed world that we live in and of our own sins and of the ultimate end of all who walk the earth. He continues, verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Again, God is the eternal, everlasting God who does not experience time like we do. A thousand years are as nothing to him. A mere watch in the night. That's a three-hour stretch out of the night. A mere watch in the night. Whereas, on the other hand, man is swept away like a flood. He says their lives are like a dream. Was that real? It just kind of happened and it's gone. All of this is reminiscent of Ecclesiastes. You remember in Ecclesiastes, a generation goes and a generation comes. All is vanity. Right? That is a mist. Nothing that we can grab onto. It's like wind. You can't catch it. We have it, it's gone. And we know this, how quickly time passes. How recently was Saskatchewan green and full of life? And then all of a sudden, you blink and it's brown and dead. And you blink again and this morning it's winter. Time passes. Verse 7 continues this consideration. It says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, 
our secret sins in the light of your presence. I understand Moses in these verses 3 to 11 to be considering death in general. Death as it comes to all mankind. He's not simply talking about the most wicked people. He says in verse 7, we are brought to an end. He includes himself in it. And quite likely he's got the nation of Israel in mind. They've been, the older generation has been told they're going to die in the wilderness. There's been the sentence passed. All mankind meets the same. One of the difficulties here is that he speaks of death as a result of God's anger and wrath toward man. And so we might wonder if those who are justified by God's grace are out from under God's wrath and anger for sins, then is this an appropriate way to speak of death pertaining to God's people whom he has redeemed? The reality is that God's people still experience death. And it is a temporal judgment from God as a result of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We still die. God's people still die. Now, there's a massive difference between the death, obviously, of the wicked and the death of, of God's people. But it is still ultimately all owing to sin. Moses himself died without seeing Canaan. Why? We're told in Deuteronomy why. He, he didn't uphold the Lord as holy before the people. And so God was angry with him, we're told. On account of the people, Moses says, God was angry with me. And so he said, you're going to die before you enter the land of Canaan. It, it, was, a, it was a judgment of sorts for his sins. That doesn't mean that Moses eternally perished. That's not the case. That's not true. But nevertheless, he underwent death, and it is the result of sin. And whether this was written, whenever it was written, it acknowledges here that God is not unjust in bringing death to mankind. He says, you have set our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. Again, man dies as a result of sin. God is holy. Our sins are violations of his law. And so God is just in judging human beings. Even our secret sins that nobody else is aware of are exposed to God's light. And of course, this is precisely why we need the gospel. This is precisely why we need good news. This is why we need the good news that there is pardon in Christ Jesus, that there is forgiveness of sins. Why we need to know that though we still wear out and die, if we are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need this confidence that our death does not give way to eternal judgment, which the Bible calls the second death, that in fact will hold no power over those who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, we can know that we will be carried safely through that final storm, death, carried through judgment and given eternal life. In this life, Christians are still subject to death and decay, and it is a reminder of sin, which is what I understand Moses to be reflecting on here. And then he adds in verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Israel wandered in the wilderness with this judgment over their heads. This older generation is going to die. And again, I, I, I don't think that means that every single Israelite who perished in the wilderness was unbelieving and, and sent to hell. I think there would have been faithful believers within the group, like Moses, like Aaron. I think there would have been some others as well. And yet, given the nature of the, the Sinai covenant, this 
this judgment was pronounced upon the nation as a whole. Right? Save two people who were able to go in, Joshua and Caleb. And so they did have a difficult life in one sense. They had to spend their days wandering the wilderness. Knowing they would never enter the promised land. Of course, in a much grander fashion, all mankind lives their days awaiting the time when death will take hold. And in very poetic fashion, the end is described here as a sigh. A sigh. And often this is the way. Often we don't go out suddenly or in some blaze of glory, if that's even an appropriate way to say it. It's just a fading. It's just a fading away. Just a gradual loss of life. Youthful vigor fades and dries up, and it goes out like a sigh. Verse 10 says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Moses speaks of the typical lifespan being 70 or maybe, maybe if you're really strong, 80. In the post-flood world, lifespans were shortened. And life is filled with difficulty, filled with trouble, Moses is acknowledging. It's not just the wilderness generation. That, we just read that in Genesis 3, the curse. It's going to be difficult to, to, to live, to survive, to, to, to get food from the land. Our days are short, they're difficult, and then we all fly away, we die. Again, Moses is reflecting on life's brevity and the reality of death. It's inescapable. And he concludes this section by asking, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Uh, he, he, he doesn't conclude here that this is just all wrong. God's mean or rude or wrong to be to treat us this way and to not give us more. And, and he doesn't go there. Rather, he says, who thinks about these things? Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I mean, really, who, how many people think about these things? We don't. If, if this comes up at all, God's wrath or anger, people hate it for the most part. People despise us. Many who would profess to be Christians won't have it, don't want to hear about it. How few people want to consider the power of God's anger and the brevity of life and the fact that his anger and wrath is just towards sinners. How few want to consider this in humility and in the fear of the Lord, as Moses says. We'd rather do virtually anything else. We'd like to remove all thought of this because it's not easy necessarily or pleasant but this will not serve a single person. As uncomfortable as these things are, the scriptures are reminding us again here of the truth of God's holiness and of man's sinfulness and of the great difference between man and God. Again, the God before whom we have sinned is not just uh, a man like me or someone else who's just a little stronger and more powerful and greater. He's eternal. He's the creator of everything and everyone. He is perfectly holy. By contrast, we are finite and our days fade quickly. And now as we get to verse 12, Moses makes a number of requests of God in light of this. While few might consider God's judgments in the fear of God, Moses is doing just that here. In verse 12, we have the first prayer, first request. He says, so therefore, in light of what I've just said, in light of these things, in light of this reality, this situation of who you are and of our shortness of our days and deaths hanging over us, Teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. The prayer is that we might recognize the shortness of our time. That what Moses 
has said in this psalm is true, that we might reckon with it honestly, humbly before God, and receive it, and thereby gain wisdom. Again, we saw this in Ecclesiastes as well, that if we would be wise, we must prepare for the reality of death, which could come at any moment. And it's only in doing this that we can begin to rightly live out our days here. And obviously this first begins with taking refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. This whole matter of sin and death and judgment under God's wrath, it, it screams for a solution. It is true, while Moses presents this to us here as being just of God to deal this way with man, it is nevertheless true to understand that the presence of death, it's, it's not right in one sense, in that it's not natural. Again, it's, it's an intrusion into God's good creation, the result of sin. And so that part of us that as we think about people dying and someone dies suddenly and tragically and young and, and all these things, and, 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 and as again, as Ecclesiastes reminds us, and yet other people go on to live long lives before they die and they're wicked people. We think this doesn't seem to make sense. Something doesn't seem right here. This is very true that, it, it, that, it, that it, in one sense it is, doesn't seem right. Because it's an intrusion into God's world. It is a distortion. It is part of the curse. Ecclesiastes, again, we read that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. That sense that there ought to be something more than just this. So this whole matter of judgment and death screams for solution, and it comes only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God has come to earth and taken flesh to himself. He did so so as to redeem lost sinners under God's condemnation. He came to satisfy the eternal God's eternal wrath against sinners, to secure salvation, to secure the forgiveness of sins, to secure eternal life. There is gracious pardon, and it comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God calls all men everywhere, women, young and old, to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess your sins, to acknowledge that what Moses is saying in these verses is true of you, that you likewise are a sinner, deserving of God's condemnation. And to believe then in the Lord Jesus Christ, to place your hope in him, that he saves, that he forgives, that salvation comes not through trying harder or working harder to clean yourself up, but by looking away from you, outside of yourself, to another, to the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness that we need to withstand judgment is the righteousness that God gives as a gift of his grace to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all who trust in the Lord Jesus, the second death, eternal judgment, has no hold. As Jesus said to Martha, though you die, yet shall you live. Yes, we still undergo death if the Lord does not return before then, but yet shall you live. And so the wise person in the fear of the Lord will seek refuge in the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as those who've done this, again, as we said, we we don't suddenly get taken out of this world to no longer experience death. We still live in this sin-cursed world, and we still experience trial, difficulty, including death. Eternity is secured in Christ, but we still suffer, we still die. And so keeping in front of us the brevity of life, the things that Moses has said here, keeping in front of us the holiness of God will continue to help us to grow in wisdom, to gain a heart of wisdom.
That's verse 12. Verse 13, he gives a second request. He says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Moses seeks from God here compassion on his people. In light of the difficult days lived under the sun, in light of Israel's consequences of wandering in the wilderness, this is a prayer that God would not forget that he would be merciful, that he would not withhold his kindness from them. In light of living in a fallen world, in light of the shortness of our days, it is appropriate, it's right to look to God for continued mercy. We pray that God would deal mercifully with us, that he would discipline us in kindness, that he would help us through our various trials. It is true that God promises faithfulness to his people, but we also see throughout the scripture, God's people still called to ask him to be faithful, to pray to him to be faithful. In one sense, it's almost holding God to his promises. You've said you will be faithful. I'm looking to you to continue to be faithful, though we face these difficult odds or difficult situations. Have pity on your service. The third prayer in verse 14 and 15, he says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. I find this prayer amazing, and it just makes sense to me and rings true, that he would then pray here that God would help us to be glad and to rejoice, given all that he has just said. Given the evil days that we live in, the affliction that we are afflicted with, given the time we spend in God's sin-cursed world, we clearly need help to be glad, to be those who would rejoice all our days, however many days those may be. And also with all that is so temporary and so uncertain, The prayer that God would satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love is such a great prayer. Here's the sure thing, the only sure thing that can and does truly satisfy and and bring about rejoicing despite the difficulty and trials of life in the sinful world. Whatever comes, however many days we live, The God who never changes has pledged love, his steadfast love, to all of his own. Again, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. As God's people today, here and now, we're calling on the same God that Moses worshipped. And we can say the same thing. We look back through history and we say, you have been our dwelling place for all of our spiritual ancestors through all generations. Whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people of Israel in Egypt, the people of Israel in the wilderness, believing in God, the people of Israel in the land of Canaan, the early church, the church all through the ages until now, God has been our dwelling place. This has never ceased to be true. It is the truth that has encouraged God's people through all manner of trial and difficulty, including the trial of even laying down their life for the truth. How could you do that and get there if you don't have this understanding that you are God's and God belongs to you? And that even if this and when, if and when this life ends, God will be faithful to you. And the second death can do you no harm. You will be ushered into the Lord's presence. We get distracted by earthly things, and they're necessary things in many cases, work, providing, and so on. But we again need to lift our eyes to these truths. Life is short. It is passing fast. It could be gone any moment for any one of us. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. This is not an excuse to grumble, is it? You think of this 
Moses, you're wandering for 40 years. And then in what seems like a minor infraction, strikes the rock and God says, you're not going into the land of Canaan because of this. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. He he understands God is good and he is just in all that he does. Be reminded of that which truly satisfies, of the goodness of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek your contentment in life, in God's love for you in Christ Jesus. That will carry you through. The fourth prayer here in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. The desire here is to see and to know God's work and power. Again, perhaps this is looking ahead to God's promise to bring the children of the wilderness generation into the promised land. And Moses is praying for them to see and to know God's power that they might believe him and obey him and and actually take the land, which of course we know is what, what... did happen. It is good to want to see God at work. Who wouldn't want to see God's power on display through the saving of many souls, through a true revival of, of true repentance and true faith in our day? We pray to this end. Who doesn't want to see the next generation see and know and understand something of God's power? Finally, verse 17, it says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Life is short and fleeting, but God has given his people work to do. We have callings in which we serve God and we serve for his pleasure. We have gifts to use in edifying the church, building one another up. Some have families to raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We have worship to give to God as we gather in our own homes. We have good news to proclaim to the fallen and sinful world. And this prayer for continued favor, for the establishing of our work, again, makes perfect sense. If anything is to survive, if any of this is to have effect, whether it's sharing the gospel with other people or with our children, whether it's seeking to build the church up, whether it's seeking to represent our Lord well in the workplace, to do these things with with good attitudes. If, if, If any of this is to survive and be meaningful and have effect, we require the favor, the grace of the Lord to make it effectual. We need the Lord to establish the work of our hands. However much time he has given us. And so the correct response to life's brevity is not laziness, but it's redeeming whatever time God does choose to give us. So again, life is short. Few things are certain. And reckoning with this is crucial. But it needn't simply depress us. It shouldn't leave us in depression. Because of God's steadfast love through Jesus Christ, because Jesus has secured eternal life for sinners, we can live out our days with gladness. We can live out our days with purpose, with meaning, even in the midst of evil times for however many days God chooses to give us. And so may the Lord indeed establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder of your steadfast love. Thank you for the reminder that before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our minds can't get around just how awesome and great you are. And this is as it should be as your finite creatures beholding the infinite God. Father, in light of your greatness and who you are and your holiness and your perfection, our sins are indeed grievous. 
And so we thank you that though it would be just for you to wipe us off the map at any moment and banish us forever to hell, you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to secure forgiveness of our sins and righteousness, that we could be clothed in his righteousness. And that this is not something we have to gain because we could not possibly do that, but it's a gift you give in your grace to sinners who look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Father, we praise you, we worship you, we give you thanks. Help us to gain increased wisdom in our hearts as we consider these realities. Keep us from despair at all the unknowns. Keep us from despair about the brevity of life. Help us rather to rejoice all of our days, as many as you would give us, as difficult as they may be. Father, we know that this is right, and we see our weakness. We see that we are prone to grumble and to complain, to feel sorry for ourselves. Father, I pray that you would rid us of that. We need your spirit to sanctify us, to help us in that. And I thank you for the ways that you are sanctifying us. Thank you that your discipline for your people is ultimately for our good. Help us to believe that. That the same God who has been faithful to the people, your people of old, you are the same God that we speak to now, that we worship now. You are not changing. Your word is true and you will keep it. Father, we pray that you help us to have courage where we lack it now. To speak what is true and to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Namely to the good news that there is forgiveness of sins in his name. Father, help us in these days. We, we feel our weakness. And so we pray for your, your mercy upon us, that you would help us. And God, we do ask that you would establish the work of our hands. Father, that, that for your own namesake and for your own glory, you would establish the work of our hands. Father, that our children might believe in you and know your power to save and to sanctify. That they might see with eyes of faith who you are in your word. Father, establish the work of our hands in our church. Lord, as we come and we gather weekly in this way, if you don't come, if you don't do good work and prosper your word and your people, there's no reason for us to be here. We are needy for you. So we, we, we pray that you would do good work in our midst. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us to, to date that we can look back on our, our days and see that you have been faithful. Help us to believe. Help us to be courageous. Lift our weary heads. Lord, help us. Help those who are downcast and, and, and struggling with that. Father, it's a very real and grievous difficulty. Indeed, we, we pray along with this psalm that you would satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We pray all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.